You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kasselasen, are excited to be back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing and very raw exploration of the world of rule-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. As usual, let me start by saying good morning, well, actually good afternoon to you, uh, Moritz, and good morning to you, Jerry. Good afternoon, Niels. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. As you can tell already, I'm not in my usual setting. Uh, the noise or the, the the sound here is a little bit different, and of course, uh, um, you know. So we'll see how it goes, but hopefully, it'll be okay. Well, I'm really I'm really happy about uh, the three hour late start. It's eleven o'clock, <laughs> not eight o'clock, and maybe um, I know I'm usually very quiet and reserved, so I'm, I'm more awake now. So get ready. <laughs> Great. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds exciting. Well, I mean, another kind of interesting uh, week, uh, week oil markets for sure. Um, some movements on the uh, on the commodities. Uh, you know, some of the. Grains, I saw, did okay. Some of the softs did okay. Um, and then, of course, we had um, kind of flattish uh, U.S. stock markets and, and kind of weak European stock markets. So we'll see how all of that um, turned out in our various portfolios. And, of course, um, Moritz, as we do, our little tradition, maybe we start out to hear um, how you saw the week um, in, in Trendland. Sure, happy to do that. Thanks, Niels. Uh, week has been flat, so um, you know I, I mentioned earlier this year has been off to a um, wrong-footed start, so to say, uh, losing money pretty much every week, um, and it's starting to it's nagging me in a way. Um, it's been a flat week, um, quite some good gains from from the bond markets, so long bonds, um, long the U.S. dollar against most of the other currencies that has been good as well. Uh, lost money in the energies. I had some position change in the equities as we had a um, kind of like recovery in uh, in January from from the correction in the fall of last year. Now that has turned around um, in the past week. Uh, I've been a bit more long, so lost money in the equities. So summing it up, a flat week and still down, obviously, for the year. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um Somewhat of a different picture, I have to admit, on our side. Um, I was looking through the portfolio this morning. Uh, we trade 54 markets, and actually 45 markets uh, made money last week. So we had a strong week on our side. Um, like you, uh, I mean, fixed income, uh, certainly one of the biggest contributors. Uh, extraordinary, given the low levels of interest. Um, yes. Because it's, you know, it's certainly European bonds doing well. Um, you know, the Australian bonds did uh, did okay for us as well. Mm -hmm. um, not so much in the US, uh, really. And then we had generally uh, positive contribution from equities, um, mainly European ones and uh, Asian ones from the weaker uh, equity markets we had last week in that uh, region of the world. Uh, not much movement in the, uh, in the US equity markets in terms of performance. Um, and then, of course, the U.S. dollar, a stronger dollar. Um, we're happy with that, so so that helped as well. And then a few generally small pluses in commodities, but the 
commodity winner, so to speak, uh, was wheat on our side. So all of those things did well. Um, Theme-wise, um, I would say the only difference maybe is we're seeing some of the equity markets now actually turning long again after uh, dipping uh, short for a while uh, in December and early January. Um, but we're seeing sort of a selected few. Still overall, I would say short biased in our portfolio, but uh, a few things happening on that. So uh, yeah, so good month, uh, sorry, good month, good week for us. And we're slightly up for the year now, uh, which is um, which we haven't actually been able to say since February of last year. So that's a nice change. What about you, Jerry? We're always excited to hear what happens in single stock land. Um, but of course, you may have also had a uh, completely different experience in terms of the other markets um, that uh, Moritz and I were talking about? Yes, um, it's a, we're heavily committed to long dollars, so that's nice. Um, I guess Sweden set a new low in, um, in that trade. Uh, cattle keeps going. That's a relatively new pickup trend. Cattle, palladium keeps going. That's nice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, biggest um, winner, by the way, of the markets I follow with a 5% move last week. Quiet in the single stock world. My 37 stocks are mostly long, slight, small, long, net, long, but uh, nothing crazy, nothing really going on there. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, pretty quiet and uh, not a lot of broad movements. I'm sure we didn't have a huge percentage of winning markets last week sure sure all right well let's um there's quite a few things to talk about today actually we uh, one on one hand we have uh, quite a few questions coming up um but i also know there was uh, you know uh, a bit of activity uh in uh, on the twitter side uh and um yeah so why don't we just jump into that uh, jerry and see what you uh, what you picked up this week a lot of interest this week in uh, one of the biggest was um, uh, I retweeted an article, uh, uh, a tweet from uh, Top Traders Roundtable with Lowen Waxman and oh, yeah, Castro Plarsen. Sure. Um, <laughs> and I quoted uh, both guests. Got a lot of interest. Uh, I think we keep learning the same lesson, and, and that lesson is that when liquidity drives up, all correlations go to one. Uh, I think that was Saul and then Andrew Lowe. I think there are a lot of lessons from the financial crisis, but the real question is who actually took those lessons to heart. So I think, uh, I'm not sure why people thought it was interesting. I guess everyone sort of uh, has their own reasons, but that was a great interview and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they were both uh, definitely uh, on on form um, during the conversation. I think you're right. I think one of the things that I liked about um, the quote from Andrew Lowe about uh, who took on uh, any of these lessons was he, for people who want to uh, dive into it, they should listen to the interview because he actually goes through some of the various constituencies in our industry and talks a little bit about whether he thought they had learned anything or not. Um, so I, I like those uh, quotes as well, for sure. Um, and in general, I mean, he's, they're both super interesting people to, uh, to listen to. So, so thanks for, for tweeting about that. There's another interesting article, uh, Seth Klarman interview. And the part that I liked the most was how important it is to have great clients 
Um, it's probably more important than any factor in enabling a manager to take a long-term time frame <clears throat> when the world is putting so much pressure on short-term results. At the worst possible moment when your fund is down, you need to have clients who will actually love most of the time, if not all of the time, to add rather than subtract capital. Uh, I think that's definitely you know, the, the biggest takeaway from the turtle experiment, the turtle program was how important uh, it is to performance when you the client adds money when you lose and they love your strategy and understand your strategy enough to know that the bottom line is following the rules. I've actually had clients tell me that recently uh, when I tried to explain performance. Uh, just be quiet. I don't want to hear it. Just tell me you're still doing this, all the trades you're supposed to do and you're following the system. And that's exactly the way it was in the turtle program. The first big drawdown, they added capital, you know, 50% capital to our accounts uh, in the spring of 1984. So just having growing up in that kind of environment where doing the right thing, do the, do the trades, that's uh, how we'll grade you and in, in, uh, sort of now you get into the real world and that's not how clients react most of the time. I did have one other client who was very similar to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's obviously they got a lot of love from a lot of people who have clients who don't behave that way. I can recommend the article. I uh, You shared it, Jerry. Thanks for that. I read it uh, yesterday evening. Enjoyed it a lot. It's an interview with um, Jason Swike, I think. And um, <clears throat> such... Um, such a great character, I believe. Um, lots of wisdom in there of treating clients fairly, not, you know, uh, not gaming them, not overcharging them. Uh, all of you've said is, is absolutely right. Have a good relationship with your clients is uh, probably one of the most important things when you run that business. And I think it's a, it's a point that is very probably still very undervalued by, mm -hmm. by the people who set up businesses because very often what happens, I guess, in our industry is that it's the guy with the the idea or the model or the rules um, that sets up the business, um, and so of, of course there's a lot of attention to, uh, about you know how good are your rules, how good is your system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, Jerry, from that article. I mean, it is critical to have great clients in order to make that business uh, successful, and actually also in order for the investors to be truly successful. As investors in trend following, um, you know clearly people who understand that and 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 tends to maybe add through drawdowns, they may well end up compounding at a slightly higher rate than even the original track record um, shows. So I mean that's super important. And I think the other thing you it kind of alludes to is this thing about when when you talk to clients, and that is whether whether you're making, as a, as a manager, whether we're making the best decisions or whether we're making the most accurate decisions in our models, right? Um, because I think there's a big, um, there's a lot of misconception perhaps where people look at our track record, we may have a big down month and they may say, well, that didn't look very smart. I mean, why did your model make those decisions? But then when you analyze the market behavior, then it's clear uh, that the models are making the accurate decisions based on the data available at the time. So it's not so much about making the best decisions. Um, you know, it's about, you know, people sometimes confuse that with the outcome of those decisions our models are making because a, a down month might be 
a bad outcome, but it still may be the right or most accurate decisions we, we should be making as trend followers. That's right. And it has nothing to do with education. Uh, if they just understood, if we just educated them better. No, no, no. It's a fundamental uh, misalignment of how you're going to handle uh, bad periods and how do you treat all of your managers and do you understand that this is an odds-based and long-term game and people just get emotion like they get emotional or they get under too much pressure or they buy into cta strategies that they're not committed to um, <clears throat> so it's really a, a shame uh, the client has to do their part in order for it to work because our part is doing all of the trades which is mandatory for it to work and if we get cut off or money redeemed, then that too is another way of not doing the trades. You're gone. You're, you've paid the price of all the losers and you didn't hang around for the winners. Absolutely. I think it's very important. And I think the other thing is that... The, go ahead, Morris. Say that, that I found was um, really important, um, which he said in the article, is to prevent the drawdown that gets you into paralysis, right? So... If you're down 30, 40, I think that's the number that he used, then he would say that he's probably paralyzed and his clients would freak out. And then that kind of like that bondage, that relationship uh, starts to fall apart. So he's extremely, I got the feeling that he's extremely um, focused on preserving the capital in that and, and not running it into that 30, 40% drawdown, which, you know, is great, but um, maybe, maybe he has, I don't want to quote unquote advantage there. If, you know, we follow our rules, we follow our trading system. Um, we may get down there and we still need to follow the rules. You know, for us, it would be the worst, the worst thing to do would, would then be to abandon the rules and no longer follow them. But our rules may actually get us down to that point. And, um, and he was, I think very often saying that that is something that must never happen to him because of him then just being, you know, stuck. Yeah. And I think the other thing, I, I agree, um, you know, um, very often with you, of course, Jerry, and I, I, and I think uh, today is no, no exception, meaning not only do clients have to do their part, but I think also what we have to recognize that um, we all have biases and, you know, investors, I think, are a little bit disadvantaged uh, to some extent because they have to kind of analyze and embrace a lot of different types of strategies to, in order to build these kind of um, very diversified type portfolios. And, and I think, there is, I think it's, it's only human to have some kind of biases uh, towards some of the strategies. And I do feel that there is more often than not, you know, biases that... Uh, often make investors more skeptical uh, from the start, from the starting point uh, in order to fully embrace the explanations uh, we give as managers in terms of why they need to look at our performance uh, in a certain way and maybe not judge us exactly the same as they might judge other types of, of strategies. This thing about you know, our job is to follow certain rules. And if we do that, we're actually doing a good job. The outcome might not be so good from time to time, but, you know, our job is we don't control the performance. We control um, whether we do the trades, we control the risk we take, and so on and so forth. And as long as we keep doing that, 
um, you know, we're actually doing our job. And but I, 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 you know, sometimes you come across people who, and maybe certainly in the news uh, and the media, where um, you know they 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 don't quite seem to to get that point. So I'm glad you brought that up, Jerry. That's great. What else uh, happened in, um, in the social media world? Well, we enjoyed a, a nice um, roundtable discussion from a magazine, I think, called Hedge Nordic CTA right. Roundtable late yeah. last year. I enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> this one tweet that sort of coincides with another article that I believe we all saw that I don't think I tweeted, but it was along the lines of clients preferring Cinefi structures uh, zero and something, uh, zero yep. management fees or low management fees and mostly incentive fees. And this sort of ties in with it. Uh, the quote is, the CTA approach is often the result of years of research. And we believe that means significant, significant better adjusted, risk-adjusted returns. Some are saying we wouldn't mind paying a little bit more to get something that we think is better. And I think especially if it's maybe incentive fee only, that um, seems to make people feel better. Although I think that uh, it's very difficult to uh, it, to pay less. It, you'll, you'll definitely pay more incentive fee only if, if when the performance is as expected. So to some degree, you're kind of I love this CTA. I want to invest in them, but I'm going to choose zero in fifteen versus one in ten or one in five because, um, well, I really believe it, and I really believe it's going to be great, but, I, but I'd rather pay more, essentially. So if you put it into a spreadsheet, um, it's very difficult to not pay more if it's incentive fee only, but uh, if it makes you feel better, okay, whatever. But one in zero yeah. or 150 basis points in a CTA mutual fund is a darn good bargain compared to almost any incentive fee. That's true. I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think you can find many flat fee funds where, you, where, where, as you say, if I understand you correctly, Jerry, you say if the manager actually performs as expected, it's cheaper to buy the flat fee. The problem I have, and, and, and that's certainly not reference to some of our peers, in, you know, where, where you, know, you have great strategies being offered at, at very reasonable cost for, you know, for one reason or another, um, but I, my main concern has been with these, um, let's just put them under the umbrella of banks and big asset managers who didn't really believe in trend following up until a few years ago when they could kind of uh, come out with it in a different, um, you know, dress it up in a different way. And suddenly they called it, oh, but it's a factor and this factor is momentum and we, we, we can do that very cheaply for you. So... That's that's the part I don't like about uh, you know when when you see these people offering um, something that looks like uh, trend following, um, but I, I I think it's a cheap version of it, and therefore of course it should be cheap. But 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 I I don't I'm not sure investors can really tell that the difference. What you bring up is interesting because one of the things that's happened in the industry the last few years, at least among pension funds, um, is this concept of paying one or 30. And, and this was um, something that also came up in, um, in a um, roundtable I did in Miami with the uh, Texas uh, Teachers Retirement System and also um, Florida State Board, so two massive pension funds. Um, and I think Texas, Texas Teachers has been part of developing this with 
Allborn, the consultant, I think they coined this new uh, payment structure where essentially the manager gets a 1% uh, management fee, but it's also a payment against potentially a 30% performance fee, but not both. You get one or the other. That was my original fee structure in 1988. <laughs> one, wow. or, one or 20. So you get the one. Wow. Or zero and twenty, and so yeah, it's a great fee structure. Um, yeah. I love that, but it would uh, yeah. be more. I think maybe one in fifteen, maybe now, or so one in ten. But uh, maybe that that has even come down. But that's a great fee structure. Yeah. So in a sense, it's it's nice to see that the pension fund. Because on one hand, if I'm sort of maybe this is just this is just my view, but I do like to see the manager actually having some. Uh, incentive to do well, to keep innovating, to improve the strategy. I think some of these banks who roll out, you know, these replicators, there's really no incentive for them to do well other than to be, do well in asset gathering. Performance-wise, they couldn't. They're not incentivized to do that. And I know in some products, you have to go with the flat fee. And, and so I understand this is not necessarily, you know, something you can apply across but I do think it's nice when when there is some alignment, like you mentioned there, in, in you know one or one or twenty or one or thirty or, or whatever. But uh, you know, it is important, especially I think the the asset gathering part part of what you just said. If you have a manager like yourselves um, with uh, just an incentive fee, that means the manager will only or is only incentivized and interested in raising assets if that manager believes that he can actually make money with those assets. If that wouldn't be true, there wouldn't be an incentive to actually raise them. Whereas that just, you know, if you have a, a flat fee structure, that coin flips. You're, you're being paid for raising the assets. And I don't, I don't believe that that's in the interest and that that pays a service to the client base. Yeah. I know there were a lot more tweets coming from um, the CTA forum that uh, Cameron put together along with his team back in, uh, I think they, it was recorded back in November of last year. So just we should keep that in mind when we comment on some of the uh, things they said. But it was a great um, conversation, so I think you have more. Yeah, uh, here's another one. <clears throat> uh, this year we saw far too many players trading the same trends. Trends appearing more quickly and sharply, everybody jumping in the same signal. When true value appears, we tend to see a sharper snapback. Have we seen that in the data? Until this year, not at all. <clears throat> eh, I didn't like that one as much. Um, not sure it's correct. Uh, two people liked it. <laughs> so, right. Uh, and uh, I think I'd like, just like to see the data. It's pretty easy. Have we never seen uh, at all a snapback, a monster, ridiculous snapback all the time? Uh, yeah. We've all lived through natural gas multiple times. Oh, my gracious. Swiss franc. Um, yeah. Since 1984. It's been some very uncomfortable snapbacks. Uh, but anyways, it's all in the data. It's easy to talk about it. All you need to do is put some trades in a spreadsheet or do a little back test and run some statistics. And uh, we just haven't had enough trends. I don't know which ones uh, we had a lot more. It wouldn't matter so much with the few snapbacks. Yeah, I think that, um, again, as managers, we always... Tr you know, we, we're kind of uh, encouraged to come up with explanations uh, when 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 tough times uh, comes along, like last year, and uh, and so these are kind of the easy headlines. And I, but I agree with you. I don't think that it's accurate to say that this has never happened before. Uh, and what may not have happened so often, 
and this is purely from memory, but I do remember discussing it on our side when when we saw the initial um, correction um, back in February of last year, January, February of last year of the equity markets. What seemed a little bit, and maybe it's just because everything had been in an uptrend for a long time, et cetera, et cetera, but what seemed a little bit unusual was that you had new all-time highs, um, you know, straight from, from new all-time highs, you went into a, a kind of a quick, um, not not that deep, but deep, relatively speaking, to the last few years, correction. But 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 that doesn't you know account for a whole year's performance or anything like that. So I agree with you, Jerry. That I think it's a little bit um, easy to say that this has never happened before. I'm I'm sure it has, and those markets you mentioned are you know very good examples of of um, of these things happening. Uh, sort of V-shaped recoveries are, are not unusual at all. In fact, I think March uh, 09 in equities was a pretty V-shaped recovery. Um, you know, one one day marked the low, and from there it went straight on up. So, what about you, Moritz? Yeah, any view on that? Absolutely agree with Jerry. I mean, uh, the list and the number of markets with sharp snapbacks and reversals to me is kind of like endless. I have that graveyard of them. It's lean hogs, gasoline. I mean, pretty much all of the markets. So um, I just, you know, when they say it hasn't been in the data, um, I don't agree with that. It's certainly in my data. Yeah. One of the most important things, if, you know, maybe he was talking about stocks, but uh, <clears throat> that's why it's just so important to, to trade so many, uh, many different stocks and try to get as much diversification by choosing individual stocks because you can just bring up charts and some of the stocks, when they snap back and they have a, downtrend uh, or a cr crash in like October, some are in downtrends already. Some, we, we got flat. <clears throat> some, uh, the longs, the, yep, they suffered and some snapped back to being long again and it, <clears throat> continuing on the uptrend and some turned into flats and shorts. So, diversification is it's mandatory to try to minimize some of the yeah. unfortunate. And then uh, improving your system Look at look at the stock of uh, Tesla right now. Not that I'm trading it. I'm not sure if yeah. you trade it, Jerry. But uh, I mean, that's kind of like every day is a snapback, one way or the other. Right, right. And another uh, good quote from that. It was my favorite, probably, um, from that roundtable. Is um, under the increasing pressure from lack of performance, there is a human tendency to tweak the model to satisfy uh, requests for change. Managers can oh, yeah. become victims of emotions and then get fooled by short-term randomness in, uh, in the underlying data. So, yep, you know, maybe not changing the systems quick enough and, and realizing that we should improve and change and evolve, but you can also do the opposite, you know, get emotional, change too quickly. Clients are complaining, employees are complaining, you're complaining, uh, and we've got to do something. Let me see what you, how are you going to handle this? You know, and we, we see the, we do the back test, we see what happens. Uh, I think overweighting recent performance in the data in determining how you're going to trade is a, just a tremendous mistake. It's unfortunate that I don't think the world works that way. I wish we could <clears throat> rely more on recent data. The world is changing. There's computers, there's AI, there's machine learning. There's so many changes. Let's just overweight the past few years and we're on our way. I'm not sure that is the answer. So, so I have a comment on that, but I also have a question for you guys. Um, so we we heard that a lot, um, in particular after February of last year, where you know the whole industry got 
got caught uh, from the reversals and and so did we and 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 we got a lot of questions about well what are you going to change uh, so that this doesn't happen again and 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 our answer uh, obviously along the line as you uh, alluded to Jerry I mean the answer is always we're not going to change anything to handle a short term event if it damages the long term uh, you know projected performance of course so so that that's the thing but i wanted to ask you guys just out of curiosity if you think about major changes to your strategy system how many of those have you really made say in the last 10 years or so very few yeah and i just wanted to bring this up i think jerry you also tweeted and, and i probably also tweeted it um there's a uh, a person called John Gall, uh, the author of a book called The Systems Bible. And um, I purchased the book. I didn't know it existed. Um, Amazon Prime, thank you. Got here within, you know, the next day I had it. it. It's not really about trading. It's, you know, systems theory in general, like, the, you know, the system of a production line and all that. But a lot of the things in that book, I haven't read it completely, but a lot of the things, um, they relate very closely to what we do. So what that person says is, what we reiterate all the time on that on that podcast is a loose fit is better, it's more robust, it you know keeps you in the game for the long run. And one of the things that was really great, I think, is that every system, it says like every system must start out as a simple system. It needs to have that clean and pure idea, it needs to work on a simple basis. If it then starts to, and I will answer your question, Niels, if it then starts to evolve and develop over time, and becomes more complex, and it still works, then the added complexity is kind of like a good thing. But if you start out with complexity, you're very, very unlikely to have a system that will work from the get go. So, and it's, you know, I, I didn't know that book. But to answer your question about the major changes, I'm extremely careful, and and considerate about um, changing, making you know, forced, brutal, you know, tough changes, um, meaningful changes to the system, um, systems, you know, changes that would maybe change its character. It's just never going to happen. I, I don't want to do that. I want to I wanna stay true to what I've developed back in the day. It is, you know, based on a very simple premise, trend following. Well, very simple, simple enough, I'd say. And, you know, that that fundamental thing must never change. I will never touch it. Um, I will work around the edges, you know, try to find better ways, maybe diversify the exits, trade more markets, um, do a few things here and there. But the major changes to answer your question in the like even last 10 years, nah, I, I, nothing I would really say is super, super major. Sure. What about you, Jerry? Well, I think, um, just continuing to be committed to uh, diversifying when, when possible. It's a slow process, but sure. over the years, uh, I mean, when I first started, we traded 20 markets. That's a lot more than 20 now. And so that's having that commitment built in is important. Uh, longer term, I mean, probably the most uh, fundamental change was in the late 90s, early 2000s, just uh, extending our look back period. And then we st then that hasn't changed. Uh, so I think things like that are, well, that's probably pretty much about it. Um, maybe one, or two, one, one other thing, you know, just uh, 
but yeah, it's that's a great, beautiful benefit of trend following is that it, the system works. It's not going to work unless it's trend. That's the bulk of your what you're banking on. So you don't have a lot to change or think about changing except stopping with the trend following. And that doesn't seem to be the correct answer. No, and, and of course, we're completely in line with you. I mean, less I would say less than a handful of, of changes in the last, uh, you know, 15 years or so. And um, but, I, I, but I'm not so sure that people necessarily realize the value of, of that kind of information. Because to me, at least, it truly goes to the robustness of the underlying thesis of what we all do. Um, the fact that you know, with all the with all the changes we've seen in the world and in the world of finance and the markets uh, that have come on, the technology, you know, uh, you know, high frequency trading and all those new strategies that you know weren't there, and and of course people talking about there's too many people doing trend following and and so on and so forth. But with all that change, yet the three of us sit here and say, well, actually we haven't had to make too many changes in 10, 15, 20 years, and still it continues to work. And I, I truly believe that that is a testament to the underlying um, you know, strategy. But I think it's an underappreciated um, fact. But anyway, thanks for sharing that, guys. Anything else um, we should talk about uh, from Twitterland, but also maybe from the article, any other topics? I have, I have a, a lot of stuff. We don't. We can save some for next week. Uh, sure, sure. I don't always make sure that people understand I'm being sarcastic and I'm making fun of things, you know, that I tweet. So you got to figure it out for yourself sometime. But uh, this one I thought was pretty funny uh, about Bridgewater. Quote: She then shared the secret sauce to the sustained outperformance of the world's biggest hedge fund: radical transparency, videotaping every conversation for. Re- for review later, constant evaluation of peers. It's kind of a family atmosphere. I thought that was really funny. And <laughs> I, I do think my family has been like that some. Now, and we, we repented and said we were never going to be like that again. And yet, uh, they, that's what they ascribe to their success. Videotaping and uh, constant evaluation. Kind of, kind of funny. Did you see it live, Mart? So in Miami, I missed it in Miami, but I know that's probably where the where it came from, um, the interview there in, in uh, at Context. Yeah, so positive, not all of it. Uh, I met the person quoting it uh, on that day later on. Very interesting. Oh, yeah, sure, you did. <laughs> You're on the A-list, of course. I uh, forgot about that. Well, I don't want to say that, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you have to be lucky once in a while. Um, that's true. But yeah, they, they have that going. That's, that's how they work. Um, surely not for everyone. Sure, sure. Any other... Um, Sarcastic tweets, <laughs> or maybe not so sarcastic, who knows? Well, there's a few, but I guess we should end with uh, the most popular uh, of the week was a quote from one of my heroes, and probably the first time I heard about trend following in the early 80s. I was you know, in a public accounting. Oh, yeah. Martin Zweig was kind of a famous Wall Street guy on Wall Street Week, and I just never met anybody or heard of anybody who was quite uh, as humble humble as he was and sort of technically oriented uh and he wrote books and had a newsletter and i was subscribed to the newsletter and it was about trend and uh sort of uh sentiment contrary opinion and so um i sort of wrote all of that in in my retweet about how he was my hero i met him one time and uh in new york and uh, i actually uh 
bought all of the historical newsletters that he ever put out. I just called up the you know, his firm and said, hey, can I buy all of the newsletters? And they're like, yeah, you're really weird, but sure, we'll send them to you for, you know, whatever. So I have them somewhere uh, for some reason. And uh, he sort of, um, that whole, his complete package of the type of person he was, and he's sort of credited for um, calling the crash of 87, which I don't think is exactly true. Um, that video of him on Wall Street Week being very nervous prior to the 87 crash is out there, as you can judge for yourself, but uh, great guy. Um, and so the, his quote that got the most interest this week that I retweeted was, I'm a trend follower, not a trend fighter. I'm smart enough to realize that a slap is easier to recover from than a beating. That's pretty good. I like it. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to get. It's hard to, to to separate the parts of trend following that are between making money and uh, protecting capital. And I think, from our point of view, probably for people who've been in the business, it, it doesn't always look like it because our choice of leverage can overwhelm uh, our claims of diversification and taking small losses and protecting capital. Uh, because if we trade so large and have multiple, you know, frequently double-digit up months and down months, plus 10, minus 15, and stuff like that, you know, makes it hard to follow the systems, makes it hard to like it, and it's hard to keep clients, and it's hard to sort of convince people, well, we're really taking small losses. So, uh, but I think this is sort of getting to the heart of it, you know, for all of us who want to <clears throat> a, have a long-term business and be in, uh, be in, be, uh, do this job for a long time is, you know, it is all about um, taking the small losses and diversifying and longs and shorts and taking slaps and in, uh, putting ourselves in a situation where we can make money if there are long-term trends, if there are mega trends, outlier trends. Uh, and essentially, we are preserving you know, capital, even though it doesn't always look like it. And I think that's what he's sort of saying here. It's very important. <clears throat> absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Great quote. Well, why don't we turn our attention to uh, some of the uh, questions? We have quite a few. I hope we can go through all of them uh, this week. Um, so let's just jump in, jump into it. Um, first of all, thanks very much for all the questions and and keep them coming. Just email them to info at toptradersandplug.com and we'll do our very best to uh, to answer those questions uh, the following uh, week when we do the recording. So appreciate it. First question is from uh, Craig. Um, and it's about portfolio uh, allocation to different markets. And I'm just going to try and find the place where the actual question comes. Uh, it goes something like this. We all know about the benefits of diversification and that trends can essentially happen anywhere. However, portfolio allocation to various markets, equities, bonds, commodities, forex, seem to be one of those areas uh, which has a wide range of implications from CTA to CTA. Besides fund capacity or market's liquidity, uh, is it truly optimal to have equal weighting to each market sector, brackets or sub-market sector? Put another way, should all markets really be considered equal from a trend-following perspective or should empirical evidence to be, ta uh, be taken into account? Uh, from my own empirical research, I found trend-following strategies on single stocks and commodities easier to apply than on Forex, for example. But perhaps this could be unique to the time frame I mainly operate in, which is two weeks to three months for winning trades. Great question, Craig. Um, and um, I know, Jerry, you're going to be loving the reference to single stocks. So why don't we start with you? What do you think about... Um, 
how to treat markets? Do we treat them equal or, or not? I think uh, <clears throat> yes and no. Um, <clears throat> so I think you definitely look at the empirical results and understand that uh, some of the markets that are available in the futures are highly correlated to each other, heating oil crude and unleaded. Uh, so I would take that into consideration. I, my heating oil, crude, heating oil plus crude plus unleaded position is about the same as my cotton position. So something like that. Or you could just say, I'm just going to trade crude and cotton. I'm not going to trade heating oil and unleaded. They're sort of correlated. So, But if you want to avail yourself of all the different markets, they do have different chart patterns when you overlay trend following system on top of it. The crude, heating oil, unleaded correlation will be less than if it was just a buy and hold. So yes and no, you definitely want to um, pay attention to the correlations. But split split up the markets uh, into um to take into consideration that um you know that they are correlated but they are slightly different as well what about you uh maurice do you want to have a different view no pretty much the same view um as you would expect it's important to have as many independent say moving objects in your portfolio as you possibly can so like that um just as jerry said if you have uh you know Uh, heating oil and, and and crude, then probably have some overlap there. They're highly correlated markets, and uh, you may not want to trade both of them. Or if you trade both, then uh, maybe you want to split the risk. The same goes for gold and silver. There's a couple of other ones that kind of like relate to each other. Um, but in terms of treating markets the same way, yes, I'm a fan of that. If if I were to look back and uh, and kind of like make a call on which markets to trade based on historical performance, I'd be very heavily overweighed on essentially trading a long neutral bond trend following system that would probably win and um, and just look beautifully. Um, now that that is just, you know, that is yesterday's that is yesterday's news. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to play out in exactly the same way in the future. So I do want to have all those markets in there, regardless of their recent performance. Um, and I want to focus on um, them being independent and behaving different from one another over time. And then I just treat them the same way, built up the portfolio and and give it a go. I, I just, you know, I cannot sit here today and say that, you know, for the next 10 years, um, bond markets are going to be again The best trend following markets in terms of PL, even though you know this year seems like it again. But I, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Very true. I mean, completely agree with both of you. And I think to to your uh, to answer your question, uh, Craig, I think I mean one of the basic philosophies within trend following uh, is a quote. I think that it was Larry Hyde who coined it. I know Alex Grazeman uh, has used it uh, certainly subsequently, and it's this thing: knowing what you don't know. And I think that really has to underscore everything we do in terms of how we de, you know, um, create our models, the fact that we don't pinpoint one single time frame and therefore we don't want to pinpoint anything specifically really in, in, the, uh, in the approach. And that goes to markets as well. I mean, there's no, you know, we shouldn't be guessing um, because it would be a guess about which markets would be doing well in the future because we have no idea of knowing it. And therefore, treating markets equal I'm a fan of that as well. Uh, we do it on our side. And um, I agree with Jerry, of course, your sector allocation, uh, you can consider it. 
Um, but I think it also is about common sense. I mean, you know, have a fully diversified portfolio, um, but don't overweight it uh, completely in, in just because you have more markets in, in one sector, have a bit of common sense. And then do your test testing, see how um, see how it all uh, seems to fit together. So, uh, but great question. Thanks for that. Next question is from uh, Johannes. And it goes like this. Um, I have created myself a profitable strategy for trading, uh, which could also be implemented into investment decisions. I make many intraday trades and have a good track record. Drawdowns occur maybe once a month or quarter uh, and are not significant. So my question is, um, are there funds or CTAs, etc., who make investments for a very short period of time. Basically, is there any way I could scale successful uh, intraday trading into a large-scale business for outside investors? Or if my wishes are to scale up, should I focus on purely conventional uh, investing? I mean, I'm happy to go first on this one, uh, Johannes, mainly because I've interviewed, uh, and I know Jerry and Moritz, uh, you know, uh, have, have obviously talked to many uh, of our peers as well. But some of the interviews I've done have been with short-term managers, um, and of course, it's possible. Uh, I think the I think there's a couple of things to to think about when it's uh, when you do short-term. I do think, of course, um, I mean, size will be uh, an issue at some point, meaning. Longer-term trend-following strategy should, all things being equal, be able to manage more money over time. But I don't think, you know, I don't think it's going to be an issue when you think about whether you would be successful or not from from doing this. There's plenty of liquidity in the short-term space as well. However, I do think uh, some of the challenges uh, in the short-term space uh, is coming up with something that doesn't compete too too much against people with big pockets like the high frequency managers and some of the very large um, uh, managers in the short term space because then then it becomes I think hard to build something that is uh, gives you sustainable uh, alpha over time or outperformance um, on a small scale and and actually it's something we uh, look at in, internally on, on our side as well and that is can we find something uh, in the short term space that can be scaled. So far, we haven't really found anything we feel can be scaled, but doesn't mean other people can't. I certainly met people who are, you know, are managing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or even a billion dollars in the short-term space. Of course, it's it's possible, um, but it really depends on the markets you trade and and uh, you know how frequent uh, your trades are. But you know, great question. Anything to add, um, Jerry Moritz? What would you suggest? It's possible to do. Um, I think it brings a technology aspect with it in order to do it successfully. There are a handful of um, successful managers out there that have been able to um, to scale up their business, just like you said, Niels, to over a billion um, trading shorter term systems. Some of them intraday, some of them like one to three day holding periods. But um, you know, I I know them and speaking to them, I know that they're very very heavy on the technology side, much more heavy than we are as long term trend followers. And um, just like, you know, to put a number out there, there's a, you know, a guy I spoke to um, just this past week, their um, annual cost, transaction costs, slippage, you know, clearing, all that type of stuff is 30%, three zero, yeah. 30%. So <laughs> you have to, you have to have a real good system to come out ahead. Um, so that's just one of the things to keep in mind there. You know, obviously I would discourage that, but um short-term trading but i think it's fun also to even though we are different and alternative to some people it is kind of fun 
to uh, participate in major moves in the markets and, you know, be able to kind of have a process in a system that is sort of real world, you know, I mean, I'm being short uh, crude at 90 in 2014, and it goes to 20 something. That's fun. That's good. It's kind of cool. It's in the news. People are talking about it. The CTAs crushed it. Uh, That's, that's good. Now, a short term trader uh, may have made lots more money than I did being short at 90 and then getting out at 25. You know, but um, it's just kind of long, short, long, short, a million times in between. But I don't know, this disconnect with reality and what's going on in the world makes it less fun for me. I think that's a great point. And the other thing, this is something that, um, and I think Moritz, you're absolutely right. I mean, technology, and I've certainly spoken with managers as well, where they, you know, their starting point in terms of slippage and cost is just enormous. So keeping up with that and ending the year with a net positive return for your, for the client is, is really hard work. But here's another thing, something that I certainly would, would um, consider as well, and that is just quality of life. Because we as trend followers, we essentially design systems that all things being equal, you could run spending maybe an hour a day to run your system, implement, you know, put in the orders, and, and off you go. I'm not suggesting that if you were running it as a professional business that you could just turn up in the office for a month, for a, an hour a day and, and investors would be happy with that. I don't, I'm not suggesting that. But I'm thinking of this as if you as an individual, um, which is what, what you, I think you are at this point in stage, uh, Johannes, if you want to design the perfect life, why would you want to sit in front of the screen all day doing short-term trading. I, I don't see that as the perfect life, frankly. Um, so doing what Jerry has done, doing what Moritz has done, doing what 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 Dunn has done, um, you know, desi- designing systems that essentially, um, you know, doesn't require a lot of work in terms of the day-to-day side of things um, and which you, if you didn't have external clients um, or if you have understanding external clients that, 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 you know, fully embrace the fact that you're doing this so you can have more free time, um, you know, because I've come across a lot of managers who, who uh, don't spend all their day in the, in the office yet. The performance is, is absolutely good. I mean, there's no, no doubt about it. So I think that's another aspect you should think about, Johannes, before you, you decide what kind of um, strategy you want to run. I mean, take that into account. Uh, time is one thing we don't get more of, so um, we should make the most of it. Absolutely. Good stuff. Now, the next question... Uh, guys, and, and by the way, um, I want to say this to to the listeners. Usually, very often, <laughs> Jerry and Moritz they don't know the questions in advance. Um, not because I don't want to share it with them, but just because they can come into my mailbox and we just talk about it. And it's meant this, these conversations. I'm sure if you've listened to them, you know, before, you know, it's pretty free free flowing, and and we want to keep it like that, very casual conversation. Um, but this question I had to send to them in advance because it's very detailed. It comes from Manuel, so thanks, Manuel, for this question. And I can't even read all of it. It's, it's quite long and, and detailed, but I'm going to try and paraphrase it a little bit and I would like to hear Moritz and, and you, Jerry, talk about it because I think it's more up your streak than it is uh, our streak, so to speak. But I think the question is, if you have a trade and you're using, a, say, a breakout system and you're using some kind of stop level initially, in, in this case, you know, average true range, uh, as, as an example, and you, um, 
you know you you buy your quantity and essentially at the point of entry you have a one percent risk for that position to your stop and then the market starts going in your favor and of course if the market moves up at some point you might have two percent risk if you haven't moved your stop so I think what 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 Manuel is trying to find out is what are some of the good rules for managing the size of the position or managing the risk? Do we manage the stop price? Do we manage the size of the position in order to keep, you know, the position in in some or the risk at at you know at some reasonable level? I think it's an interesting question. So I'd love to hear your views about it. Um, and um, yeah, um, it is a really long question. We've mentioned a couple of times on this show that we don't like the daily vol controlling. I know that is not exactly that what that question is about, but it relates to that. So I'm just I'm just explaining again, or like alluding to to what I'm doing. Um, if 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 I've entered a long position and that market starts moving in my direction, then well, first of all, that's a good thing. I'd like to see that. It may mean that um, I may have more risk on depending on how fast that move is compared to the initial risk, risk which I had when I entered the trade. Now, I can be very liberal, more liberal with open trade equity uh, compared to, to compared to capital, right? I have to be extremely strict on on the capital, on the money that I have, must prevent that from going down all too much. But in terms of the open trade equity, I actually don't mind a little bit more risk all too much. So I'm not playing around with the position size there. The risk may increase a bit, but I'm not like reducing the size of that position in order to get it back in line with my original original risk target only because the trade has started to make money for me. I actually like to see that. There's There's one instance where, and really that is the only instance where I go in and change my position size. And this is what probably this is just me doing it that way. But if I have a runaway market, so I go into I enter a trade, and that trade just, you know, rockets, it moves extremely fast, produces PL extremely quickly. Um, and, and therefore increases my risk. So it, it just gets a great distance to my stop. If if that happens, in like it, as rapid as I just explained it, like over just a couple of days, right after the entry of that trade, I will reduce that that position a little bit. I will not get out of the trade. I will not do a counter trade trading system. None of that. I will definitely stay long. It just won't be as long as I have been. But other than that, not playing around. That that's not what I do. I'm not changing the position size. How about you, Jerry? How do you tackle this? So I would use uh, different words and definitions. So the what I'm going to do is put the trade on at the entry place and then set the stop loss to, um, you know, four, six, whatever ATR loss, which is going to yield a 50 basis point loss, you know, or a 25 basis point loss. So that's my risk. So I'm never going to use that word again. <clears throat> that's the risk. If it goes against me by some ATRs, I'm going to cap that, put my equation together in Excel, and it's going to yield a 50 basis point loss or 30 basis point loss, whatever. So then if the trade turns into a, uh, keeps going higher, though, in my natural trailing stop, 
My second exit, <clears throat> the trailing stop, different from the stop loss, if that now is uh, higher than the stop loss, then the stop loss is now out of the question. <clears throat> it's not going to impact me at all. So as the trade goes and makes profit and stays above my trailing stop, the vol can do what it needs to it, it, double, triple, quadruple, 10x, whatever. My risk is not increased because my risk was the risk of loss of capital. But my volatility is increased. My standard deviation is increased. So I think I don't want to think about this increased volatility as increased risk. Um, <clears throat> although I do agree totally that uh, at some point when the trade is larger and, and we've been in the trade for a long time and the volatility is really large, and it's just got everything in the world going for it, like natural gas, let's say. <clears throat> uh, we weren't in it very long, but it was a mega profit, of pretty well, pretty decent profit, and the volatility was skyrocketing. There's certainly nothing wrong with taking some of that off the table, reducing that. But I think his fundamental problem was equating the stop loss, which is there to preserve capital, and then the trailing stop. There's a second exit, the trailing stop, so uh, I'm going to be so concerned. My concern level is at 10. It's maximum. I'm not going to lose more than 50 basis points. But if it's a profit, oh my gracious, I'll let that thing retrace hundreds of basis points. Uh, I'll let it turn into a loss and eventually lose the 50 basis points if, if, that's, if the trailing stop hasn't moved up. So I think that is more of a traditional, old-school, trend-following approach which I really like, but I'm not against tweaking that in similar ways that uh, Moritz mentioned. Yeah, no, I think both questions are absolutely perfect, and I think that is the way to answer it. We don't use uh, uh, stops on our side, Manuel, so I think the answers you just got from uh, Jerry and Moritz are absolutely perfect, and I think they, um, they're exactly how you should uh, be thinking about it. So I uh, appreciate the question. I would prefer a system that didn't use stop losses. I don't really know that they're that necessary. When I did a do the back testing they don't seem to be that critical so if you only have a stop a trailing stop that's far far better than constantly trying to prevent the market and the open trade equity to sort of like do its thing and let it turn into a mega profit yeah yeah no absolutely and then we have a question from our dear friend george uh george has more of an allocator style question uh he says here uh, you've all said you want 50-60 markets slash return drivers for optimal diversification in a robust trend-following system. Ray Dalio's Holy Grail says the marginal benefit of adding uncorrelated return streams starts to drop significantly around 15. Would you comment on why trend-following seems to require so many more market return drivers? L let me just, before I read the second question, George, let me just quickly answer that. I think there's a bit of a difference here. I don't think Ray Dalio says, I'm only going to trade 15 markets. He's talking about return drivers. And as Jerry just alluded to earlier in our conversation, um, you can trade three energy markets, but essentially it's probably only one return driver. So I think that's where the 50-60 markets come from, often mentioned by us and, and our peers uh, as a you know well-diversified portfolio. But if you strip it down to you know, the 10 sectors it might represent and maybe there's a couple of sub-sectors uh, we can add to it, then you probably end up with, you know, around 15 return drivers. That That's kind of how I see it. But I'm going to go on to question number two. It's just otherwise I might forget my own answers. I'm going to go on to the next question, then Jerry and Moritz there. 
they, they're much smarter than me, so they can answer both questions without having to remember your own answer. It says, you've all say you want 50-60 market return drivers for optimal diversification. You've also said it is wise to trade multiple parameter sets per market return driver. For simplicity for this question, I will say multiple equals three. You further said the risk per trade should be in the 50 basis points range. Uh, perhaps this math doesn't pro uh, probably convey how it actually works. And then he does some some math saying, you know, you have 50 markets, um, three parameter sets that equals 150 basis points, and then you have 75 markets or, or 50 markets, so you could end up losing 75%. While highly improbable, using this logic, it appears if things went really wrong, a trend-following system could, in theory, lose 75% at once. If this is wrong, please explain. If this is right, please explain why you're not concerned. So, two questions. Jerry Moritz, who wants to um, want to tackle these first? Happy to do it. Um, on the number of markets, the the point with the uh, the fifteen markets is that mathematically, uh, if you looked at things, the the marginal benefit of adding more markets after the 15th market isn't zero, it just decays, it you know, becomes smaller. Now that, that may be true, but my thinking about, about the portfolio is, is, uh, is a different one. I like to have as many markets as possible, as long as they behave in independent ways. And we've mentioned a couple of times on that show that even in our experience trading those systems, um, the year may may depend on just one market, right? It may depend on just crude oil in 2014-15. And if you didn't have that market in, um, then it wouldn't be a good year for you. So the more markets I trade, then statistically, the greater the likelihood that I will uh, be able to participate in one of those markets that will make a good year for me. So I I like it. I like many little risks, as, as many as possible. And like I said, the benefit of adding another market that is not correlated by positive one is not zero. It just becomes smaller, but it's still a benefit. So let's go after those benefits. Um, and it's not difficult to do, so therefore I like it. On the second question, um, I like the question, but the I think my answer to that is relatively simple. If I had three parameter sets and if I wanted to risk, say, an initial 60 basis points, on a certain market, uh, then each of those three parameters would have a 20 basis point risk. So I would just, you know, split it into, um, split it down and have each parameter, you know, I regard that as a subsystem and uh, those have then 20 basis points of risk. And if you sum it all up, it's again, the 60. I wouldn't risk 60 on each parameter. That would be too much. Yeah, I so. I, and yeah. I think his final question there. <laughs> yes, um, can your trend-following system lose uh, all that money in a go? I mean, remember we're long and short. Most of the time, we're long certain markets, short other markets. Um, you know, every once in a while we have a short tilt, then we have a long tilt. But you know, it's 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 a mix. And yeah, sure. I mean, if if all on a certain day. Every single market that we traded uh, moved <laughs> in such a crazy way that they all hit the stop at the same point in time. 
then yes, I will be losing my initial or that whatever the risk amount is that I have on at that point in time in, in one sweep go. Um, is that possible? Theoretically, yes. Is it likely? I'd say no. What say you, Jerry? Yeah, just on the last one, I think sometimes those numbers, they do look a little uh, daunting and large. Uh, my response, though, is that uh, I've never had a position on in all the markets at the same time. Uh, and the positions are put on over the last year, year, years, months, you know, and they're, some of them are very old, one or two years and on up to yesterday, you know, so um, there's a built-in profit and some of those trades. So it's not quite as bad. Um, the equation he gave us, which I don't even know if you mentioned, it's, it was incorrect because you have to divide it by three. You multiply by three, you have to divide we don't risk 50 basis points on all three systems. Uh, I think that's what he was sort of saying. But yeah, um, yeah. So, anyways, it's it's a complicated subject. Uh, it's hard to hard to get it get it down to a to a sound bite. Uh, but uh, you know, it's <clears throat> it is one of those things where when you look at your, um, I know some people like to look at their what happens if all my positions hit my stop loss that can. You know that doesn't look that great all the time. It's it's good that clients don't see that, <laughs> but uh, yeah. thankfully we do have diversification. And at the very end, I would say to George, um, it, all if, if you have the perfect system, the perfect plan, you should always. It needs a backup. It needs uh, something that that it, it's going to need help at some point in your life, uh, and that is just to reduce your risk, take some positions off. If the ball is getting too high, if the losses are getting crazy, uh, and you do see a lot of risk out there and, and the markets are crazy, I've seen times like that. You know, just trade small for a while. Get rid of half your positions. Get rid of a third of your positions. And uh, George accused me of, um, this sounds like it's overriding. Yes, I'm o okay with overriding for risk control reasons infrequently. Don't trade with large leverage, uh, with uh, four minus four plus four percent P and Ls per day. You know, you're not going to be quick enough and deft enough to make these cutbacks. That's crazy. So trade small, risk 25 basis points per trade or 50 basis points per trade, and then maybe that could be too much sometimes. So cut that back, and but just do it infrequently. You know, you're not doing a system trade when you do a money management trade. But you may have to do a money management trade to ultimately preserve the capital. And you have a positive game. You have a positive system. So you'll eventually win. Minimum boldness. Uh, so that is, is the rule. It is sort of overriding, I, I do think. But it's a good override. But you would want to do it infrequently. On the first question, I questioned George on his... On the, on the question, and uh, he wrote back with a quote. Um, the, the quote that he wrote back, it, I guess it's Dalio saying, I saw that with 15 to 20 good and uncorrelated return streams, I could dramatically reduce my risk without reducing my expected returns. It's another very long discussion to, to, to do it justice, but uh, you know that's one uh, idea that doesn't apply to trend following, which um, reducing our expected returns due to uh, diversification is not applicable to trend following. All the trades have the same expectation, and we build a portfolio just based upon the diversification and uh, trying to re limit risk. 
uh, that's the way I do it. And then going forward, I expect the trades to make about the same amount of money, uh, you know, over a given amount of time. So we're not, there's no uh, opportunity cost or there's nothing to worry about reducing expected returns by diversifying. Um, it's, and then as Moritz said, it's, it starts to decline. Well, what does that even mean? I mean, it, you know, it starts to decline. Uh, you know, LeBron, uh, 30 years old, males decline, start declining in their athletic ability. Uh, but, you know, LeBron's 35. He's still the best, but he has declined. So what? You know, it's, uh, it doesn't really say very much. Uh, and it's, it's not ever going to hurt your performance to add markets and uh, improve your diversification. And, um, and the trend following kind of does, it can only increase the diversification in the markets. Uh, cannot reduce it. So uh, there have been times where uh, at least twice in history that um, trading heating oil had doubled in price. Like I said in an earlier podcast, I made 30% in heating oil in 1990 and it was when I made 30% for the year or 93. <clears throat> and silver has doubled in 87. Silver doubled in price and gold went up a little. So, you know, these, and then they went back to being 90% correlated. So <laughs> correlation is one thing, and then dispersion of results is another. I tweeted an article on dispersion of results compared to correlations, which is uh, interesting. Reed, we'll hopefully get to next week. Yeah, that would be great. I, uh, LeBron is 35, Tom Brady's 41. <laughs> yeah. they've, dropped, they've dropped off, but uh, so what? <laughs> you want to you have him off your team? Think about it. Yeah. A great question, uh, George. I mean, I think my summary, I mean, that we've already talked a lot about it. My summary is that I think I, I, I do remember that quote from, from Ray Dalio. I think I heard about it in in, um, in Tony Robbins' book, uh, Money Master the Game, uh, and, and, and his interview. I, for me, I think Dalio is referring to, you know, return drivers. Uh, we re probably, uh, I mean, we, we do talk about lots of different markets, but I think, again, Given normal correlations, we would probably say, well, the three, three or four energy markets is kind of one return driver, even though we want to keep trading all of them because one of them might just go and, and have a mega trend at some point. And so I think that's where there's a little bit of distinction there. Um, and then the other thing I think is also um, uh, very important, as, as Jerry said, I mean, when we talk about 50 basis points, et cetera, et cetera, that's for the whole market, not for each individual model. But I think also what you need to take into account in, you know, in the question about can we end up losing 75% in a day or whatever. I mean, um, as Jerry said, uh, and, and as Morris said, you know, we, we, we have, you know, a different, um, you know, different stops, uh, you know, trailing stops and open risk is not the same. And therefore, it seems to me very unlikely that that would happen, except, and this is important, uh, except that you would have seen it not with trend followers, but you've certainly seen it with other strategies, what I would define as uh, generally short vol strategies, where they do, uh, you know, see sometimes, you know, lose 75 or even 100% in a day. Uh, we saw that in February of last year, but we should not confuse that with what trend followers are doing for sure. Um, anyways, I think we've talked about it, uh, George, and um, thanks for the question. Francois has a completely different question this week. Um, thanks for that. Um, here we go. Instead of talking about differences between trend following momentum, time series, and cross-sectional data, um, I let's pretend we are watching a horse race. Okay. 
The race is comprised of 40 horses. During the race, uh, a trend follower would compare the position of each horse between now and let's say 30 seconds ago, look back period. From there, the trend follower would uh, calculate the speed of the 40 horses and allocate as follows. Long horses are move, um, that move forward, positive speed, and short horses that move backward, negative speed. At this point, only the sign of the speed is taken into consideration for the capital allocation, not the actual speed. Including the actual speed, speed would allow the trend follower to rank the horses and why not going long the fastest 15 horses and short the slowest um, quote-unquote bracket going backward. 15 horses while avoiding the 10 sleepy horses in the middle. I hope I read this probably. It's a bit um, tricky to read, um, but it's uh, an interesting analogy. The question, is it a fair statement to say that trend followers are interested in the sign of the speed only, not the actual speed? Okay, I hope we can understand fully that question and give you some thought. Let me start out on this one. So, and I'm not sure whether it's exactly how you uh, thought about the question, Francois, but we look at each market and we try and define the signal strength. So which markets we want to, you know, back with more risk and which market we want to have smaller risk in. And, of, and because we use multiple uh, subsystems uh, within each model, Basically, to get, as Jerry also and Moritz have talked about, we want to have many confirmations uh, in the same direction in order to build the confidence in the signal, the strength of the signal. Um, so clearly, if you get, um, if, if you have a market that accelerates in momentum, it is more likely that that's going to give us a, um, a higher confidence, a, a stronger signal. So in that sense, you could say, yeah, maybe we give the faster horses, uh, in this case, the more buoyant and, and momentum-strong type markets, more risk. But I also think, um, again, I'm trying to visualize this as I answer your question, I also think you can have a situation where essentially then, then this momentum you know, falls off. But it doesn't necessarily mean initially that you're going to reduce your position. It doesn't necessarily mean that some of these subs models or subsystems are suddenly saying, well, we shouldn't be long anymore, let's go neutral, and therefore the signal strength starts to fall. So it depends on um, how you define your, uh, your model. Is it only looking at the price? Well, I actually think you could have a plateau of a price after a certain trend, and actually your, your momentum or your, your position would be the same. So even though they're all suddenly taking it slowly, um, it's still in a strong trend, quote-unquote strong trend. But I also think some uh, managers, and, and we certainly uh, look at that as well on our side, would look at the signal strength itself to see if there's any information as to whether the signal itself, uh, meaning the momentum, is slowing down. So I can't say for sure, um, you know, in terms of answering your question using your analogy, um, but all I can say is um, that I think that there is a um, certain situation where speed, certainly of the trend, um, you know, is important. Um, but I also think there are certain periods where 
not necessarily it's the speed of the trend or the you know the how the momentum de develops that um, determines fully um, you know whether to change your position size or not. Anyway, that was my attempt to answer your question, Francois. Jerry Moritz, how would you? Um oh, slightly different <clears throat> uh, on that one. I, I just to start, I would say that <clears throat> if uh, if I had to choose to trade three or four different trend-following systems, I wouldn't sort of classify that as anything other than a tactical approach of uh, diversifying my entries and exits. It's not an attempt to. Um, measure strength of trend. Yes, my position doubled today in a certain market, but it's just system two kicking in uh, that has a different parameter. Nothing big going on here. They're all traded independently. It's not a signal to me that the trade has a either system one that's been in for a while and system two now has more expectation or a better trade. It's just a tactical approach to diversify my entries and exits. Uh, but frankly, I think uh, it's better to... Um, just have uh, entry criteria that is a go or no-go. So if it hits the breakout that I need and uh, another filter-ish type thing, uh, parentheses, that doesn't prevent me from uh, getting in the trade eventually, um, then I'm in. I'm in and it's and it's okay. It's I'm not trying to grade the trend. I'm, uh, I'm not trying to... Um, Add position based upon strength. It's, I have my entry criteria. They got they got met. Then all the trades are equal to me. And frankly, you have to do that because of sample size. You have to figure out a way to um, have the system generate and a backtest thousands of trades, and they all have to be the same. Uh, you know, they, in the same in the sense that they entered and exit with the same criteria. Yeah, no, I like that uh, that answer as well. Definitely. Moritz, anything you want to add or? I don't think I've got much to add to that. Okay, well then you can go first on the final question of the day, which is from uh, Samuel. Thanks, Samuel, for your question. Um, completely different uh, area, but uh, also relevant to uh, what we do. And the question goes like this. Can you discuss how any of you approach the process of rolling positions forward? Is this a mechanical or strategic system that, uh, like the trade rules themselves, is it different? Uh, is it different if the expected roll yield on an asset is negative slash positive, etc.? In addition, can each of you share your favorite resource for staying abreast to systematic investment? I thought you were listening to it, Samuel, actually, but anyways. And trend-following media, your favorite journals, subscriptions, authors. This can be gathered from tweets or such, but it would be nice to hear what all of you value in the finance industry and why. Moritz, over to you. So I go first on the last. Okay. Um, <clears throat> as far as the rolling is concerned, it is systematized. Um, now, I roll markets in different ways. Um, you know, certain markets, if they're physically delivered, they have a first notice date, um, examining their volume and open interest distribution historically. Uh, if you do that, you will see that there's kind of like a roll period when the market starts moving from one contract to another. Um, there are markets where, you know, even if a contract is listed, that contract is kind of like dormant. It's not very liquid. It's not traded that much. So you skip that and you go into another contract. Um, I have 
in some in some of the markets I trade, um, so for instance, crude oil, to give you the example, crude oil, there's a monthly expiry there. There's an expiration month every month, January to December. I'm not trading all of the month. Um, some of the month I do skip. Um, that saves me roll cost. And as far as I'm analysis, my analysis goes, it doesn't, um, doesn't cost me anything. At least historically, it doesn't cost me uh, anything in terms of returns. And, you know, in fact, it does improve my system. Um, so I'm, I'm doing that. But to make a long story short, it is systematized. It is a function of the first notice date or the last trade date of the contract. And, um, and then I just do the roll. It is not a function of the roll yield or whether a market is in contango or backwardation. So, um, 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 yeah, I'm just not taking that into account uh, for that trend following system. Great. What about your favorite resources? Yeah, the favorite resources. Let me think about that. Um, favorite resources, books, 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 speaking to people. I, um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have the favorite resource um, that, you know, I could name. Um, it is essentially... A lot of reading, a lot of books on trading, um, speaking to people who've done it. It's very important. Uh, finding good mentors, um, um, getting you know, getting their view of the markets and and how they cope with them, how they've developed their systems. Of course, you know things like Twitter. Uh, they're enjoyable. There are some good things on there. There are some bad things on there. Um, shouldn't be your only resource. Um, you know, read the, um, the white papers, the research papers, uh, which are published, uh, on trend following on managed futures in in the journals. Um, there you go. I mean, I think once you start, uh, digging into one source, you'll find references to over time, you'll find references to all of the other sources. And, uh, it's a pretty, pretty broad field. Um, and I like being open-minded. So with, you know, with my, if you want to call it research or interest in the markets, um, it is not just trend following. I, I think that would be too narrow and blindsided. It is the strategy that I that I choose, the strategy that I prefer, it's the strategy that I love. But I do want to read about other strategies. I do want to read about other managers, how other people go about the markets, learn from their failures, learn from their you know what have they their successes. And and see if any of this of those stories or like you know the, the way they look at markets. We've just mentioned Seth Klarman at the beginning of that of that podcast. He's a value investor. He's not you know a trend follower per se. But you know reading about him, I don't want to say just because I'm trading trend following, I don't want to read about him. I definitely want to read about him. I want to read about Ray Dalio and you know all of those guys just to uh, you know have have the broadest possible spectrum of uh, of ideas. I uh, never stop doing that. Never stop learning. I think you really have to, uh, to do it to, uh, yeah, to be up to the game. What about you, Jerry? Yes. I liked, uh, Moritz's answer. It's perfect. I, I think that's a great way to do it. The only thing I could add is there will be some opportunities I've seen over time, <clears throat> especially if you're a smaller trader to, um, trend follow the spread. So hold on, hold on. Uh, it's getting close. It's first notice day soon, but in the volume and liquidity has switched, but the spread is going in our favor. Let's hold on if we can, as long as we can. Um, and then uh, the opposite is um, nothing's really going on. It just looks like every day we're losing. 
uh, to the to the, the spread uh, we're losing, and we need to uh, look at the trend of that and go ahead and maybe try to go a couple days early or something along those lines. But I have made uh, extra money uh, by <clears throat> some of the commodities, nat gas, heating oil, the grains, uh, by speeding up and slowing down the spread uh, based on the, the trend of the spread. Uh, and then, of course, I do a lot of reading throughout the day, a lot of uh, Twitter stuff on the throughout the day, and uh, um, I use Google Alerts a lot. I'm interested in some certain topics and people and traders, and I have Google Alerts for three or four hundred different uh, um, <clears throat> subjects and people that I want to follow. Uh, obvious, the obvious ones that I'm interested in. Uh, Ritholtz. Uh, email each day with some headlines on that, abnormal returns, probably the best source for headlines and uh, what's going on in the markets and, and good writing. Those links are pretty indispensable to me. Uh, Thales Alternative Intelligence, Peter Lacalamida, very good, especially from the hedge fund alternative point of view. So yeah, it's a lot of good, good stuff out there and it's a lot of overlap and a lot of people quoting the same people. So. Uh, finding the right people on Twitter, if you're interested in trend and systematic and algo algorithms, uh, it's you'll pretty quickly find a lot, uh, way more to read than you can probably have time for. No, very yeah. true. Uh, to answer your question, uh, Samuel, just in a little bit of different ways, I would say there's a difference from being a small uh, shop and a big shop. I think that uh, within our uh, shop, we we have you know some very very experienced uh, traders who. You know, been trading the markets for you know twenty, thirty, forty years, and so they of course will have their own um, way of determining the ideal uh, roll point. Um, but for many of the things that I've done in my career, where it's also been starting at a much, much smaller scale, I actually think and this is it's not a plug for them uh, in, in in you know in in. Um, I mean, they're not supporting our podcast, but I think that it's worth mentioning. And that is the data source called CSI. I mean, CSI is a reasonably inexpensive data source, gives you great, uh, you know, end-of-day data. And in CSI, you can pretty much determine what kind of system you want to use for your roles. And as, um, as Moritz mentioned, I mean, and for many years, I've been involved in businesses where we basically just set the roles uh, to be kind of more or less the same date, um, you know, X number of days prior to the next or to the contract expiry, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing too clever, but it works. And yeah, I mean, as, as Jerry mentioned, you could certainly uh, earn a little bit extra uh, from uh, focusing on that. But I don't know that uh, certainly in the beginning uh, that it makes a big difference and therefore having simple rules for, for doing that side of your uh, trading uh, is probably uh, a perfectly fine idea. When it comes to resources, um, I agree with Jerry and Moritz, except that I, uh, I probably don't have so much time to read stuff during the day. Um, so my a lot of my inspiration really comes from the podcasting side, uh, perhaps not unsurprising, but uh, you know, um, I, I, there's a few podcasts that I really like. I think generally speaking, listening to traders slash managers is probably what I enjoy the most. 
um, which is partly why I started the uh, the Top Traders Unplugged, because I wanted someone like Jerry to come on and share his story and, and for other people to learn from it. I think there is so many great things we can learn. Um, and of course, my inspiration to a certain extent came from the Market Wizards book, books um, uh, written by, by um, Schwager. And um, uh, because I, I learned a lot from just reading about uh, how these managers had uh, built their businesses, their view on trading, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to do it digitally. And, and the interview uh, audio style for me was better because I, um, I have time when I drive or if I travel to, to listen to things. And so it's an easier format for me. So, so some of the podcasts that I uh, enjoy, I mean, I guess I started out like many other people listening to people like Michael Covell. Um, certainly the trader part of the podcast, not necessarily all the episodes, but, but things where it's a manager being interviewed, um, of course, there are uh, other podcasts like uh, Chat with Traders. I don't listen to that myself so much, but Aaron actually reached out to me after I had started my podcast and uh, and asked me, and, and I think he's done a great job in, in sharing a lot of uh, content. Um, so, so, you know, well done for that. More recently, there's a couple of other uh, podcasts that I have found that I really like, um, and um, they give me... Uh, like like uh, Moritz was saying, I mean, when 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 a great manager comes on a podcast and starts talking, I think even if it's a strategy that's not directly related to trend following, I think you can learn a lot and and take something away. And the constant learning is important. I like Patrick O'Shaughnessy's uh, podcast. Um, uh, something I, I do try and uh, certainly if I, I pick the right episodes, I listen sometimes to the investors' podcasts. I like what Steeg and and Preston are doing on that. Um, I also like uh, Ted uh, Seides' uh, podcast. I think he has some great interviews um, as well, both maybe more on the investor side, which of course is very relevant for me in, in, in where I sit, but also on psychology and, and, and other things. Um, so I think there's a lot of gems out there, but of course you have to prioritize. You can't, most likely you can't listen to all of them. Um, but I do think, uh, and then of course, Combined with the things that Jerry and, and Moritz are sharing as well, I think we there's a lot of uh, good stuff to uh, to do to dig into. But uh, but a good question for sure to um, find out. I think that wraps up. I mean, we're already one and a half hour into our conversation this week, so this is a long one. But we do appreciate the appreciate the questions. So um, let me just quickly run through performance. Um, this is as of Thursday, so I think Friday was an okay day. Generally speaking, that's that's going to be my guess. So, just be aware that this data may be a little bit more, a little bit better than what I'm quoting. Um, the beta 50 index pretty much flat for the month um, and down 1.73 for the year. Sockgen CT index up a quarter percent uh, for the month, down 1.63 percent. Sockgen Trend Index uh, up 0.62% for the month, down 2.61% for the year. And the Sockgen Trend, uh, short, sorry, the Sockgen Short Term Traders Index down 0.57 for the month um, and down 2.25 for the year. And then the Bridge Alternative Index uh, up 0.67 for the month and down 3.41 for the year. A lot of talking, a lot of questions, a lot of uh, thoughts today. Anything you want to? At before we we wrap up other than happy trading no <laughs> what about you jerry anything on your 
Uh, no, I think uh, this was. We got a lot left over, so yeah, hit start for next week. Yes. Okay. Cool. Excellent. So on that note, let's wrap up. This week's conversation, we hope that you enjoyed it. Keep your questions coming. Just send them to info at toptradersonplug.com uh, or send us a tweet. And if you want to give something back to us, all we ask for is that you share this podcast with uh, one like-minded friend. From Jerry Morris and me, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.